0: So please open your Bibles to Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. It was a Spurgeon who said, the word of God is like a lion, the duty of the preacher is just to release the lion. A lion doesn't need anyone to defend him, right? So may the Lord help me to just unleash his truth. So please stand and let's read. I would like to start in chapter 1, verse 27, so you can taste the context here. Chapter 1, verse 27, here is the word of the Lord. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted, has been given to you the privilege for the sake of Christ, that you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Therefore, if there is any comfort in Christ, any consolation from love, any fellowship from the Spirit, any affection and compassion, complete my joy, brothers, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being full accord with one mind. Do nothing, nothing from selfish ambition or vain glory, empty glory. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own things, to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who though being the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but entered himself by taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, So that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord for the glory of God the Father. Please be seated. Lord, we beg you, we ask you to help us. Speak to us. Open our hearts. Open our ears. We all have responsibilities towards your word. I have the responsibility of being faithful in my preaching. The congregation has the responsibility of listening attentively, making sure that what I'm preaching is true. So we all need your help, Lord. So we humble ourselves before you. I'm always amazed by your statement, Jesus, that we who are evil can give good gifts to our children. How much more our Heavenly Father, who is holy, all good, all perfect, would not give us the Holy Spirit. So we ask for a new measure of the Holy Spirit within us. Work in us, through us. Feed us with your food, with your heavenly food, Lord. This morning we thank you. We thank you for providing for our needs. We have so much, Lord. So we thank you. Thank you for the abundance of food that we have at home. Water, cars, work, healthy bodies. Thank you so much, Lord. Thank you for this church. Thank you for this place that we can assemble together. And we lift up other churches in the Salem area to you, Lord. Help your church to be faithful to you. Bring those churches that are filled with fear of men to repentance. Help them to fear you, Lord. Lord, we also lift up our governors before you. We pray for our governor, we pray they would save her, that you would bring your fear upon her heart, and we pray for our president, we pray they would restore him physically and above all spiritually. Draw him to Christ. Help him to embrace Jesus Christ. We thank you and we know that you are good. We know that your ways are holy. And even when we cannot understand, we can trust your heart. We can trust your plans. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Narcissistic. That's a word that's becoming more and more popular in our culture. Narcissistic. Narcissism. The definition? Extremely self-centered. With an enormous sense of self importance, marked by or, character, by or characteristic of excessive admiration or infatuation with oneself. And if you know Greek mythology, Narxos or the Latin Narcissus, that's from where it comes from. And you remember the story of that beautiful hunter, Narcissus, and he sees his reflection. In the waters. And he's so attracted to his reflection. There are two different stories of this mythology. One is that he drowns as he's trying to embrace the reflection. And the other one is that he cannot leave and he dies. Because he cannot leave. He's so in love with the self-reflection that he cannot walk away. And that's what we see in our culture. Society is all about self-centeredness. And what's amazing is the what our culture calls a disorder. Narcissism now is a disorder, right? So they even label that narcissistic personality disorder, NPD, and it can be treated. The Bible has another name for narcissism, and that's called selfishness. And selfishness is the DNA of sin. You think about sin, you think about Satan, you think about the Garden of Eden, and was selfishness, the desire to dethrone God out of His throne and place me on the throne of God. So, why we have so many fights and quarrels, James says, James chapter 4, because we desire, we don't have it. It's me, my will, my desire that needs to be done. Our culture, our society, is all about being self-centered. Behold the use of the prefix self. Self-help, self esteem self-checkout, self-care, self-efficient, self-branding, and selfie. There was MySpace before, remember? They changed that, it became Facebook. So we are bombarded from outside and from inside with the idea that we are the center of the universe. Everything should be surrounding me, around me. So much of the social media is all about who? My pictures, my party, my food, my vacation. Who cares? Look at me. Look at what I'm eating. It's all about me. That's amazing. And we need to have more and more extravagant parties. Why? So other people can see me. I was thinking about even pizza. You can go to a place and you can build your own pizza the way you want. And I love that. That's not sinful. But you see... <laughs> You had no such thing before. You can go to a pizza place and just whatever you want. You can just make your own pizza. I think about movies. I was telling the kids when I was a little kid, you had to wait for so long to watch a movie. Now you're sitting in your house, you can turn on Netflix, start a movie, movie in, in, in the question of seconds, change the movie to a new movie. Just because you didn't like that one, so you can just There was no such thing back in the day. It's all about me, what I want, what I like. And people come to church with this mindset. They want a church to be a comfortable place where all their likes, their desires, their self-interest are fulfilled. People want a comfortable gospel. Why comfort? Because comfort fulfills your desires. They want a comfortable gospel, a comfortable church to match their comfortable lifestyle. Dan gave me a, an interesting book called Uncomfortable about church and it made me think it's so true people want a comfortable pews comfortable chairs comfortable music a comfortable preaching comfortable relationships a comfortable sec- sanctification a comfortable accountability and even a comfortable post service fellowship and what is the problem with that the problem is the the gospel is a very uncomfortable message of an uncomfortable God dying the most uncomfortable death and then calling his followers to do the same, to live uncomfortable lives. The church ought to be an uncomfortable place in which we behold a crucified Savior. I was thinking, what is a healthy church, a prosperous church? Is there a church where you can bring your friends and they can all feel comfortable because you have the best latte in town, the best music in town, the best lighting, the best seats? According to the Bible, a healthy church is a church when you bring a visitor, they're going to feel so uncomfortable because they are hearing the message of a crucified Lord that is calling His disciples to follow after His steps. And that's what Paul is doing, as you can see in Philippians chapter 2. That's why I started in verse 27 this morning, because it's important to get the context here. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul is calling the church, he's demanding from the church a lifestyle that's matching the gospel, worthy of the gospel, in accordance with the gospel of Christ. And the first thing that he tells us is that the church needs to be united. A church that's lacking unity is not matching the gospel. Because the gospel is the unity of the Trinity, uniting all things in Christ. So, that's what Paul is dealing with here in chapter 2. How to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, implying unity in the church. And that's not comfortable. What he's demanding, what he's asking from the church is not comfortable at all. So, here we come to this beautiful passage in Philippians chapter 2. One scholar says, Although this is roughly the middle of the epistle of the letter to the Philippians, everything that has preceded and all that will follow draws its coherence from this passage. Chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. This passage is the climax of the argument of the whole letter. And we are walking through this beautiful text. We divide it in three parts. The exhortation for the mindset of humility, verse 5. The example of the mindset of humility. And then the enjoyment of this mindset of humility. Today you are going to finish number two. The example of this mindset of humility. And Lord willing, next Lord's Day, we come to the final verses. And I have a typo there. It's not 7 through 11. It's 9 through 11, in part 3. So, look at verse 5 in your Bibles. Remember what Paul is doing, he's working, he's calling the church to have one mind to be united, to have one affection, a unity of conviction, a unity of affection. Then he says, "Do nothing, nothing from selfish ambition or empty glory, but in humility of mind tell others more significant than yourselves." No, 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 don't look at only at your interest, but look in the interests of others. And then comes verse five. Have this mindset in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And you remember, that's important because verse 5 is a bridge. It's the connection between what Paul was speaking and now the example that he's going to give of the mindset that he's requiring. And you can just imagine how shocking that was. Look in your Bibles, chapter 2, verses, starting verse 2. Paul says, Complete my joy, brothers, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being full accord of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vainglory, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. How unnatural this is! That's so unnatural. You remember, I mentioned last Lord's Day. That's so unnatural. Look at little kids. They're so selfish. You are born selfish because you have sin. The DNA of sin is selfishness. You never see a baby say, Mommy needs to sleep tonight, therefore I will not cry tonight. I'm going to sleep all night and I'm not going to bother Mommy because she's tired. Have you ever seen a baby doing that? You <laughs> see little kids, they have candy. Do you think it's natural for them to share? Yes, let me share all my candy. No, it's mine. Mine. So you can just imagine how shocking it is for people coming to church and now listening. It's not about you. I know that you grew up listening to music, watching movies, being bombarded by the society that's all about you. But let me tell you, it's not about you. It's about others. So it's so unnatural. And the natural question would be, we can just picture people in church that morning or that evening when someone is reading Paul's letter. Everybody's excited to get Paul's letter. Finally, we have a letter from Paul and we hear this exhortation from Paul. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same affection. And the church is struggling. This church here is struggling with disunity. There are members in the church that they are not getting along. And Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition. Stop looking at your own interests. Look at the interests of others. And you can just imagine they are saying, how? How am I supposed to do that? How low am I supposed to go, Paul? You tell me to have a a lowly thinking about myself. How low am I supposed to go? How humble am I supposed to be, Paul? And that's what Paul does in the following verses. He paints the picture ...of the humility that he is longing and that he is demanding from the church. And the picture is none other than the picture of the gospel itself. And Paul paints this picture with three major scenes. First, Jesus in His glory in heaven. And then, as a master, he starts painting Jesus going down and down and down... ...His humiliation, the King of glory... Removing his garments of majesty, taking up a towel just like a slave, and going down even to the cross. And then the last scene that Paul is going to paint is the enjoyment of this humility. This humiliation is turning to exaltation. So That's what Paul is doing here. So verse 6, here's the example of the mindset that Paul is requiring. Have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who, remember that pronoun who connects us to whom? Christ, which was in Christ Jesus, who, though or because, depending how you translate the verb or how you see the, 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 the tense of the verb. And there is a difference between because existing in the form of God and though existing in the form of God. One is a contrast, the other one is a consequence. And both work very well. Who? Because or though existing in the form of God. So Paul tells us that this Christ Jesus had the form of God. He was God Himself. He had the essence of God. He had all the attributes of God. That's what Jesus says in John 17:5. And now, Father, glorify Me in Your presence with the glory that I had with You before the world existed. So Paul is telling us that Jesus Christ had the glory of God. He was God Himself. And then he says, who exists in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be used to His own advantage. Jesus refused to use His majesty and His glory and His deity for selfish reasons. That's why you understand why some scholars or translators say, who, because existing in the form of God, implying that because that's the character of God, that it would be impossible for him to be selfish. Because he's God, and the nature of God is a God who gives, that's impossible for him to just look at his own interests. Who Though or because existing in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be used to his own advantage. And that's the true nature of our God. He's characterized not by selfish grabbing, but an open-handed giving. And then he says... But emptied himself. And we talked about this last Lord's Day, the emptying of himself that has nothing to do with forsaking deity. God cannot stop being God. There is no way for God suddenly to be no God anymore. So since Jesus has always been God, he's always God. And when he takes upon himself the flesh, he's adding he's adding human nature to his deity. He's not putting away his deity. So, let Paul explain to us what empty himself means. So, he explains by the participial clauses. Look at that. He emptied himself by taking the form of a slave. Many, Most English translations have what? Servant. Remember, there are more than five Greek words for servant. And there was just one Greek word for slave. Dolos. And guess what? Paul is using dolos here. He's not talking about. Servant. There is a major difference between a servant and a slave. A servant has rights. A servant can say, I'm not taking this job. A slave has no rights. That's exactly what Paul is doing here. Jesus reveals the nature of our triune God by taking the form of a slave. One who gives, one who serves. That's amazing to think about the Trinity This passage has been forcing me to study the Trinity from a different angle that I had never thought before. The nature of the triune God. I had thought about God, the importance of the Trinity in relation to love. But it has been forcing me to to see the Trinity in a whole new light. The three persons. Self-giving. The nature of God. Always giving. And you're going to see next Lord's Day. How God the Father exalts the Son. That's the nature for God. A God who gives. A God who shares. He shares the glory among the persons of the Trinity. They share the riches. They share the majesty. They share the honor. They share all that they have. Then I ask you, are you a child of God? Has God brought regeneration into your lives? Are you a child of God? I hope so. Church is a place of children of God, the called ones. And then the question becomes, am I resembling my God? Am I resembling my Father, one who gives, one who shares? Or when people look at my life, I mark by grabbing, grasping, mine, me. So that's a beautiful way to show how Jesus empties himself by taking the form of a slave. And then it says, that's where we stopped last Lord's day. Here he continues describing how he emptied himself. Look at that. By being born in the likeness of man. Part of the emptying of Jesus was having become the likeness of man. Adding man's nature to himself. And it's amazing to see the contrast between verse 6 and verse 7. Because verse 6 shows us Christ in eternity who always existed in the form of God. But verse 7 now tells us that in time... He took something upon Himself. He became a man in time. In eternity, He always existed as God. Being born in the likeness of man. Paul is declaring the full humanity of Jesus. Genomenos. Being born. Born of a woman. Likeness. Speaks of God taking upon Himself humanity. Jesus became, using the words of Hebrews, in every respect like us. But it's important to remember that the word likeness reminds us that the nature that Jesus adds to himself, the human nature, is not a sinful human nature. You think about Adam's nature before the fall was a sinless human nature before the fall. What happens after the fall? Every single person is born from the conception of two sinners. Therefore, you carry with you what a sinful nature. That's why the virgin birth is so important, the virgin conception. It's God placing the seed there. And He bears no sinful nature upon Himself. It would be like a, a pre-fall Adamic nature, if we can think about, as He's taking upon Himself. As one scholar says, Jesus is truly man, but He's not merely man. And then says, and being found in human form, that's the ESV, I like the NIV or the NES or the King James that says, "...and being found in human appearance." In human appearance. See Paul's use of form of slave, likeness of man, human appearance. What is he doing? He's telling that Jesus truly became man. That's part of the humility of Christ. As fully God now taking upon Himself the form, the likeness of a creature. Christ Jesus humbled Himself by removing His robes of His visible and manifested glory, majesty, dignity, honor, riches. He never removed His deity, but He removed the robes of those visible glory and majesty. And He places upon Himself garments of humanity. Talk about humiliation. And being found in the appearance of a man. What does it mean that Jesus appeared like a man? In the appearance of man. Why is that important? And you see that Jesus, when He walked in the dusty, dirty roads of Galilee, He had no halo over His head. There was no light shining upon Him. He was not the most handsome man in Galilee. He was a man like no other man. When He walked through the streets of Galilee, nobody looked at Him and said, Oh, here is God incarnate. Look at all His glory. He was just like any other man. That's why he was mocked his whole life. That's why he was rejected his whole life. Who are you to call yourself the Messiah? Look at you. And they would mock him. In the eyes of those who saw his incarnate life, he was just a man. That's the opposite of our society, right? Our society is all about how awesome you got to show yourself. How glorious you got to be. So before posting any selfie, what do you need to do? Photoshop. Make yourself look better. That's crazy. Think about our culture and the contrast with the gospel and Christ. And sadly, we adopt our culture. We eat, we devour our culture. Who exists in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. But emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human appearance. Talk about Humiliation. The God of all glory, the uncreated one, the creator of all creatures. Now he takes upon himself the form of a creature. I don't think our minds cannot grasp that. For God to become man, talk about humility. That's crazy. We think it's normal because we're men. You think about God becoming man. That's jaw-dropping. Jesus was conceived in the womb of a poor Galilean young woman. The one who spoke galaxies and all creation to existence. The one who created all seeds suddenly becomes a seed inside a womb of a very poor girl in Galilee. The sustainer of the whole universe being sustained by an umbilical cord. Can you think about that? The one who sustains the whole world by the power of his word becomes a man and he's inside a womb and he's sustained by umbilical cord. He who brought forth all creation into existence through his word now being brought forth in blood from a placenta. That's crazy. Talk about humiliation, humility. The one who gives life and breath to all creation being fed as a baby in the breast of a poor Galilean woman. How about this? The all-wise, all-knowing, having to learn his Hebrew alphabet. Learning how to walk. How to run. That's amazing. How low shall, should we go? How humble should we be? If you ever read the Pilgrim's Progress, you know that there is the valley of humiliation. And we are just going down this valley here in Philippians. Because look at that. Verse 8. And being found in human form. If that was not enough, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. How humble should we be, Paul? You are telling us to be humble, to cultivate humility. How much humility should I cultivate, Paul? How humble, how lowly should I be, Paul? He tells us, he humbled himself. The verb to humble, tapeno, we saw that in verse 3. Remember verse 3? But in humility, in lowliness of thinking, that's the, 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 the word there, tapeno, has the basic idea of lowering yourself to lose prestige or status, one scholar says humility to humble yourself in the pagan world was regarded as a base disposition appropriate just for his slaves. And it says he humbled himself, how? By becoming obedient. Let me tell you, God has no obligation to obey anyone. Actually, it's the opposite. Everyone must obey him. He's worthy of every single person's obedience Full obedience, complete obedience, total obedience. And yet, he humbles himself by being the one who deserves all obedience by becoming obedient. As the new and last Adam, he perfectly obeys the righteous standards of God. The author of Hebrews tells us, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, listen to this. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what? through what he suffered. Even his obedience... Was a painful obedience. was through suffering. Notice that he humbled himself. Nobody made him do that. So there are many uh, liberal theologians, and they are going to say that the death of Christ was actually child abuse. How could a father do that to a child? Well, you see, he humbled himself. That's his nature, that's his character, to give himself. Humble himself by becoming obedient. And he learned obedience. Through what he suffered. And then who are we to desire a painless obedience? I want a comfortable obedience. I want to obey to the point that I feel comfortable. So I want to obey what Christ calls me to do and be. But without pain. Now, I was thinking about him becoming a man. Humbling himself. Becoming obedient. All things that he never needed to do that. He enjoyed perfect relationship, perfect fellowship, perfect worship in heaven. Then you think about Him coming, becoming a man. The whole humiliation of God becoming a man, being born, growing. And then you think about how much He suffered on behalf of other people. I asked the kids last night, I asked, Have you ever suffered because of someone else, one of your siblings sin? Yes. Yes. Yes, because sins have consequence. So sometimes one sibling disobeys or sins and there is consequence for everyone else. We are sinners and we deserve even the consequence of other people's sins. But now imagine you being the Holy One and yet spending your whole life bearing the consequence of sins of others. Your whole life you are being rejected, mocked, despised by people because of Jesse's sin. Hannah sins, Joseph sins. Sometimes you see people suffering, people who have been falsely accused, falsely slandered. Sometimes you have brothers and sisters, and we we suffer with them, right? Sometimes you see, man, that person is going through all this pain, being accused of all these things, and that's not true. Now imagine your whole life like that. People calling you bastard. Who is your dad? Now you're telling that God is your father. We don't even know who your dad is. Mocking, rejecting, all because of our sins. And it says, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. That's to the extreme of death. This is the utmost limit of the son's obedience. Obedient to the point of death. That's his humility. How humble should we be? Humble to the point of death. You're kidding me, right? God's not kidding. And as I was beholding this passage, I was confronted with the contrast between the first Adam and the last Adam. And it's just amazing. One is a creature, the other is the Creator. One had the image of God, the other had the form of God. One the likeness of God, the other the likeness of man. One grasped to be like God. The other did not grasp to His deity. One used his position for his own advantage. The other refused to use his position for his own advantage. One, his disobedience leading to his and our death. The other, his obedience leading to his death and our life. One pursuing his own crown. The other putting aside his crown for a cross. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Saving sons of Adam like you and me it's not there. The humiliation is not over. When you think about yes. How much more humility can you acquire? The the eternal one. The one who can never die. He died. Can you go any lower here? And the answer is yes. Yes. You can go even lower in this valley of humiliation. Because he says. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even. Death. On a cross. And if there were visitors in church that morning, that day, do you know what they did when they heard the word cross? They'd close their ears. No. They say cross. That's profanity. We don't say that word in public. We are used to cross. People tattoo crosses everywhere, we carry crosses in our necklace. You had to be very perverted. You had to be very messed up to be carrying crosses in the first century. Hey, if you had a tattoo in the form of a cross, nobody would be around you. <laughs> if you're carrying a necklace with a cross, you are messed up of your mind. To the Romans, Cicero, he says, he describes crucifixion as the cruelest and most terrible punishment. And Josephus, the Jewish historian, he says that it is the most pitiful of deaths. In crucifixion, everything was done to humiliate and dishonor the victim, in addition to torturing him or her to death. So, that's why Paul says, To the Jews, that's cursed. Jesus was cursed. Cursed anyone who hangs on a cross, on a tree. And to the Gentiles, that was foolishness. A God being crucified, you got to be crazy. That's pathetic. A God would die on a cross. It's one thing to lower yourself... And still remain some dignity, right? It's easy for us to lower ourselves as long as we keep some dignity. So I have, I have met some missionaries and they go to very poor places, but they keep some dignity. They have a good income, a nice house. So when you compare them to the people where they are, say, man, that's pretty good. Of course, not good compared to living in America. So you think about it. It's okay to lower yourself. As long as you keep some dignity. But look at Jesus. There is no dignity for the lowering of Himself. He could have come in the form of a king. And there would be a gigantic step of humility for God to become a human king. Right? He could have come as an adult. As a prince. Rich. And it would be humility. Right there. But He doesn't do that. He comes in the form of a a poor man. In the form of a slave And then He dies and He dies on a cross. The King of glory who existed in the form of God, clothed with splendor and majesty, creator of trees and meadow, creator of all mankind, now hangs naked with His hands nailed to the tree by the very man He created. Most of us want to die a nice death. And that's fine. I want to die a nice death. (laughs) Right? Die in your sleep. A natural death. A quick death. Oh, it was so beautiful. He was sleeping and he died. He passed away. That's all we want. That was not his death. That was the most heinous death anyone could ever experience. F. F. Bruce, he writes, It's difficult for us, after so many Christian centuries, during which the cross has been venerated as a sacred symbol, to realize the unspeakable horror and disgust that the mention or indeed the very thought "...of the cross provoked by Jewish law, anyone who was crucified died under the curse of God." Deuteronomy 21:23. 23 In polite Roman society, the word cross was obscenity, not to be uttered in conversation. Even when a man was being sentenced to death by crucifixion, an archaic formula was used to avoid the pronouncing of this four-letter word, as it was in Latin, crux. This utterly vile form of punishment was that which Jesus endured. Naked, hanging on a cross, so everyone could see the power of Rome, showing the power of Rome. That's what's going to happen to you if you rebel against us. Death on the cross was not only physically torturous, but also deeply embarrassing. The victim was crucified naked. Even his bodily excretions were on public view. How low are you supposed to go? How humble are we supposed to be? Is there a limit to humility? I'm Think about why, why is Paul writing this? Is Paul writing this so we can have a nice conversation after church about Greek words such as Morphetheo, Harpagmos, Eknosan, Keno? Let's have a nice discussion about the emptying of Christ. Is that why Paul is writing this? Is Paul writing this so we can just lose ourselves in the amazing depth of Christology that he has here? Is Paul writing this so our heads can just become gigantic with information about Christ Jesus? No, he's writing this so the church can walk in a manner worthy of the gospel by keeping the unity through humility. That's why Paul is writing this. Charles Spurgeon, he says... Paul wishes to unite the saints in Philippi in the holy chains of love. To do this, he takes them to the cross. Beloved, there is a healing for every spiritual disease in the cross. Men do not quarrel when their ambitions have come to an end. When each one is willing to be least. Have you ever seen a fight because people want to be the least? Because people want to be the greatest servant? When everyone desires to place his fellows higher than himself, there is an end to party spirit. Schisms and divisions are all passed away. Did Christ humble himself? So come, brothers and sisters, let us practice the same holy art. What do you have that's yours by right? What do you have that's yours by right? Think. Maybe your bank account, your cars, your house, your family. Your wife, what have you been doing with those things? You make a circle and says, Mine, mine, no one is touching here, mine. Because we are grasping, grabbing what we think it's ours by right. Behold Christ. When it comes to the use of our time, the use of our money, the use of our energy, the use of our strength, the use of our bodies, what are we doing with that? Are we saying, mine, me, mine, me? Or you are beholding the crucified Lord and say, let me have this mind in me, which was also in Christ Jesus. Counting others more significant than yourselves. Stop grasping, grabbing for anything that will give you some profit, some benefit over other people. Striving to be the center of all attention. Paul says, have this mind new, which was also in Christ Jesus. Remember what I said last Lord's Day? You can have all the gifts. You can be extremely wealthy. You can be extraordinary with your gifts. As I said, you can have all the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You can heal everyone. You can make miracles take place. And yet, you look more like God when you're serving and giving yourself, living like a slave, than when you're exercising all this power and authority. So my prayer is that we as a church... We would dwell in the valley of humiliation. Beholding. We are singing here near the cross. Yes, near the cross. That's where we need to be. Do nothing from selfish ambition or empty glory, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And we can and we must have because of our union with Christ. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The Roman orator Cicero, he said, let the very name of the cross, that's how the Romans saw the cross, let the very name of the cross be far away, not only from the body, of a Roman citizen, but even from his thoughts, his eyes, his ears. I told the kids that if we were living under the Roman time and we were going to the park, we were walking, and there was a crucifixion take place, I would have to close their eyes and walk a different path because of how gruesome, how nasty, how horrible, how heinous that scene was. For a little one to see. A naked person with his body completely open. Birds eating the flesh. The, while the person is still alive, hanging there. Being mocked by people. But That's why Cicero, and he represents the whole humanity. That's humanity. Far away with this cross. The cross that was so far from the thoughts of the Roman citizens. Are so near to the heart, eyes, ears of the citizens of heaven. That's why we sang Francis Crosby's song, Jesus, keep me near near the cross. There is a precious fountain. Free to all, a healing stream flows from Calvary's mountain. The cross heals us from selfishness. There is healing in the cross from what people call narcissistic, selfish tendencies. There is no remedy but the cross for selfishness. While the Romans wanted the cross far away from their eyes and ears, Christianity calls us to always behold the cross. Why? When I survey the wondrous What happens? Where the Prince of Glory died? Then what does Isaac Watts says? My riches gain I count but loss. While Cicero, representing fallen humanity, declares, Let the very name of the cross be far away, not only from the body. But from the thoughts and eyes and ears of the Romans, Jesus says, I want you often to have a meal in which you celebrate the cross. When you remember the cross and you proclaim the cross to one another. And that's what the Lord's Supper is. It's a wonderful time. It's a humbling time. I don't know anyone with a sound mind that can come to the Lord's table thinking highly of himself. Of course Jesus would invite me to come to his table. Could not invite me to come to his table. Can anyone come to the Lord's table without humility? Think about, think about yesterday, the Lord's table. Therefore, we are the slaves sitting with the Lord at his table. What a beautiful picture! And we are celebrating what—that this Lord bought us with His own blood. And Paul says, "You are no longer your own; you belong to Him." And that's what the Lord's table is—a time when we come and we celebrate the humility of Christ in in, in living, dying for us. And now, because of that, because He bought us, because we are His, we must live like Him. Shall we pray? Lord, we, we need You. We desperately need You. Humble us. Kill us. And revive us. Crucify us, Lord. Forgive us for thinking so highly of ourselves. Forgive us For not having this mindset that was in Christ Jesus so often. So often we think that we are better than Jesus. That we deserve deserve more than Jesus. So please forgive us. Lord, we ask You. We beg You. Give us grace to examine ourselves this morning. Clothe us with a wedding garment of humility. So that we may sit at Your table in a worthy manner. Lord, we pray that we would not be partaking of this ordinance without the due respect and due sobriety that He requires from us. The price paid in order that we may celebrate the Lord's table is unthinkable, unimaginable. The God who was clothed with all majesty, rich beyond all comprehension, made Himself poor, became a man, died the lowest death anyone could ever die in order that we may be His people and celebrate with Him. So we praise You, we thank You, and we pray Your blessing give us grace lord we don't want to partake this in an unworthy manner so help us in jesus name amen amen